Okay, so we can stand together and we'll read God's word. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and began to minister him. Let's pray. Lord, we're very grateful for your word and how you've written it in a way that shows us that you want us to get to know you more and on a deeper level. And um, thank you for your spirit, which allows us to understand it and helps us um, see the things that you need us to see and, and hear. And I just pray you can open our hearts for your message today, Lord, and, and help everyone here only remember the things that are true to your word um, and things that uh, will impact them based upon what you want us to do in our lives for you. So pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, well today, I did a lot less PowerPoint work, and you guys are gonna do a lot of flipping. <laughs> now, if you decide to not join me, that's okay, because I'll still read it. But I thought we would do a little bit more uh, flipping for our Bibles and, and helps sometimes solidify it when we read it ourselves. But we'll start in Matthew 4, um, I guess. Yeah, we'll start there. So. The first thing I want to do in our Matthew 4 passage is actually start in Matthew, the end of Matthew chapter 3. So we'll start the last two verses of chapter 3. So starting in 16, and, um, there, it tells us there that upon Jesus being baptized by John, the Spirit of God, or as we call the Holy Spirit, comes upon him for the first time here. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, a voice comes from the heavens confirming that Jesus' baptism as the Son of God. So what I want you to notice here is that because the Holy Spirit has come to Jesus here at his baptism, means he did not have the Holy Spirit before this. This was a big moment in Jesus' life because being equipped with the Holy Spirit now allowed him before the beginning of his three-year ministry. And having the Holy Spirit gives Jesus exactly what he needs to gain victory in the challenges that lie before him. Let me remind you of some of the gifts and benefits of receiving the Holy Spirit. So I've just written down six. The Holy Spirit 
brings to remembrance truths from God's word. The Holy Spirit teaches us what to say under times of persecution. The Holy Spirit reveals the things of God to us. The Holy Spirit guides us in truth. The Holy Spirit seeks to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. And by walking in the Spirit, we example fruit in our character like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. All these things are essential for Christ's ministry to begin. I have all the cross-references to those two. If you'd like afterwards, I can get those to you. See, the timing of this event was crucial because the devil was about to take a prime opportunity to knock Jesus off his course. And we see this in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. What struck me in these verses was how Jesus got to the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit. See, the devil did not entice Jesus or convince Jesus to come. The very Spirit that God gave to guide us and strengthen us led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days with no food. So my first question after that was, why would God lead him to a place like this? Why would his spirit do that? Why would God put him in such a position of vulnerability? And the answer is, he did this to test Jesus. See, the word tempted here can also be referred to as tested. We see many times in the word where God allows people to be tested, both to test their allegiance and to, te- and to strengthen their faith. A good example of this is in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, which reads, You shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, so that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Another good example I will read to you guys is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. A lot of us are very familiar with this. It's the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac. In verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. So here God is now going to test Abraham's allegiance to his new son, Isaac, or to Lord God, who actually gave him this son. And we see a beautiful picture afterwards when Abraham chooses God in verse 12. He says, God says, do not stretch your hand against this lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Another good example of God testing people is Job. Now, Job's a large book and there's many tests in there. But we can see from here that in the beginning of Job, Satan approaches God and God allows Satan to test Job's faith. 
And James also tells us, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And Hebrews 5 also tells us, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. See, Jesus needed to face these tests and trials, as do we. I thought Dick Lucas summed tests up very well. He said, Testing allows you to discover the weaknesses of your heart and the strength and truth of God's word and his promises. See, testing and trials help shape our faith and bring us closer to the Lord. So after that, my next question was, what is God's role in our temptation? Does he just sit back and watch the show? Does he just turn his back and let the chips fall where they fall? Or does he intervene like a puppet master to dictate the outcome? Well, now I want you guys to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We'll read that together. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 reads, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond the, what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. See, God gives us only what we can handle and is faithful on providing a way of escape out of the temptation. His ways are the escape, and that is what allows us to endure the temptations. This, this idea, this theological understanding was huge for me. I'll give you an example of my life and how, how this played out and how this worked. Uh, last year on the houseboat, um, David Jackman helped me understand this passage in, in a way I, I didn't understand how God operated in my temptation before. And just telling you how I used to think, I, I remember the discussion on the houseboat was, um, it, it's God's spirit that helps us through these times and it's his strength that gives us strength to do these things and where the question that kept going in my head well when I fail then is it because the strength of the Holy Spirit wasn't strong enough to pull me through um, I didn't understand how the strength of the spirit and me failing how that worked and it was because I didn't understand actually God's role within my temptation and my trial. And this passage here in 1 Corinthians is extremely helpful now because when I am under stress or trials or temptation, my first instinct now becomes, where is my escape? What is God's truth? Because that is my doorway out. 
and see, whereas before I struggled in my mind, I've been a Christian for 10 years, why do I still feel this way? How come my feelings haven't changed? Why does it still feel the same as now as it did then? But the understanding is the feelings were never meant, they never promised to change. But God does promise to give us a way out all the time. And it's up to us to choose that way, and that's what allows us to endure this tempta- these temptations that we face. And as we endure them, that is what brings us strength in our faiths and brings us more intimacy with the Lord. So with all those things in mind, how does Jesus endure his first test from the devil? So back to Matthew chapter 4. Verse 3 reads, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. So the first test we see for Jesus is to do a miracle by turning stones into bread. The devil wants Jesus to prove that he's the Son of God by doing this miracle. Hence the when he says, If you are the Son of God, prove this to me. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of his mouth. Jesus gets this from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You can turn there with me if you'd like to. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Verse 3 reads, And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So God was teaching Israel here that his word is more important than food. See, many times Israel grumbled because their needs were not met. Rather than being content that they had the God of the universe in their midst, guiding them day and night through the wilderness. You don't have to turn here, but you can write this down. Exodus 16, verse two. Here, Israel grumbled to the Lord because they had no food. Even though days before, God led them to water and date palms. In Exodus 17, chapter later, Israel becomes thirsty and questions if God is even in their midst. So Jesus is saying to the devil, God's word is more important to me than my physical need for food. And a perfect example of this, that Jesus happened to Jesus is in John chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to, you can. I'm going to go there. John chapter 6. So there, if you remember, is where Jesus fed the 5,000. He took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed 5,000 hungry people. And so here, being hungry or not hungry, 
isn't a problem. It's not a sin to eat food made from the hands of Jesus. See, he had no issue feeding that people that were hungry that day. But where the line was crossed by the crowd was later in verse 26. So 24 and 25 says the multitude realize that Jesus are not there. So they jump in the boats and they go after him. And Jesus just finished walking across the water to the other side. So they get there, they find him. And in 26, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. See, the crowd here, they were seeking to have their bellies full instead of seeking after the eternal spiritual food that Jesus was offering them. And when Jesus is dealing with the devil, he understands that God is his provider and that his spiritual hunger is more important to be fed by the Lord than his physical hunger of food. It now is physical need versus spiritual need. What's more important? So what about us? Do we approach God's word with the same desire or need? Do we long for God's word more than we do food when we're hungry? Is our Bible just stuck collecting dust on our bookshelves or our coffee table? See, every day we spend time planning meals, cooking, making lists for groceries, wondering and planning what we'll eat next. But do we put the same and it's just as much thought and time into our relationship with God? When are we going to spend time with Him next? When are we going to feed our spiritual hunger? See, where you place priority of your relationship with God is important to Him, and I challenge us to evaluate this. Spend time with the Lord. Make your spiritual well-being more important to you than the physical desires we have on a daily basis. So what was the devil going to try next? Verses 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 4 tell us this. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So Jesus is asked to throw himself off the top of the temple. And if Jesus is the Son of God, the angels should swoop down and save him. The devil uses Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12, to set the table for Jesus to prove to him he is the Son of God on his terms. Or another way to put it is, the devil wants Jesus to prove he is the Son of God now, on his timetable, the way that he wants. And if he doesn't do it, then it must not be true.
And if Jesus went through with this jump, it would force God's hand into saving Jesus. And the issue with this isn't just that Jesus entertained the devil's wishes. It would actually force God to prove that Jesus is his son outside of his loving character. This event would make God out to be some show-off God that only cares about showing people what he can do. But really, God wants to reveal the proof of his son on his terms and his timetable with a loving expression of the cross. So how did Jesus answer this challenge? Well, verse 7 tells us, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus gets this quote from Deuteronomy 6, 16. And there it reads, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massa. So, what happened in Massa? Well, turn with me to Exodus 17. So, starting in verses in verse two and three, we see here that we see here that the Israelites begin to fight with Moses about why they don't have water. Have you brought us out from Egypt to kill us from our children? Verse four, we see here that they want they want water so badly that they decide to take matters into their own hands by threatening the life of Moses. So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do these people a little more and they will stone me? In verse 5, finally after Moses approaches God for help, God gives them a water source. And at the end of this passage, we actually see Israel's motivation to why they even threatened Moses. In verse 7, says here, and he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? See, they didn't believe that God was with them or cared for them. So they tested God by forcing his hand to provide for them. They put God in a position to act and protect Moses, demanding action from God on their terms and their timetable and taking advantage of his faithfulness. See, Jesus uses this scripture to fight the devil because the devil was doing the same thing as the Israelites. Is the Lord among you, Jesus? Are you the Son of God? The devil was attempting to make God show up on his terms to come and protect Jesus. I think Jesus' response can be summed up like this. I'm not going to force God's hand in his faithfulness to protect me. I trust that the Lord is with me and I don't have to prove anything to you. So my challenge to us today is do we demand God to act on our terms in the way we want? And if he doesn't show up the way we ask, do we abandon him? 
do we think he just isn't there? Or that he doesn't care enough to show up? There's a good example in Jeremiah 44 of this happening. And Judah shows us. So God sends a prophet to uh, warn Judah of all the wickedness that they've done in past ancestors and fathers. And in verse 16, their response to God, after, he t- after the prophet tells them this, says, As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we are not going to listen to you. But rather, we would, cert- we would certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out libations to her, just as we ourselves and our forefathers and our kings and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Because then we had plenty of food and we were well off. We saw no misfortune when doing this. But since we've stopped burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out libations to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by famine. According to them, when they went God's way, they lacked everything. And God didn't operate the way they wanted Him to, so they're going to continue in their wickedness and reject Him. So I have two things that we can do to avoid this in our faith. Number one is learn what God's promises are for you and how He operates when we're in relationship with Him. And two that trust that he will be faithful and never fail you. So what else can the devil throw at Jesus? Well, verses 8 to 10 tell us this in Matthew. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the devil changes locations once again. He is taking Jesus to a very high mountain. And he uses this particular view to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. What I find interesting is notice that Jesus doesn't deny the devil's power and authority, but he actually takes issue with the devil's demand of worship. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 to show the devil where his worship lies. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, the devil used the lust of the eyes to attempt to pull Jesus in, offering him a kingdom here and now, something he could see with his own eyes. Not having to go through pain, suffering, rejection to inherit this kingdom. But instead, 
Jesus trusts in God and his faithfulness. He trusts his word when God says to worship him and serve him only. He trusts that God, God's promises may not be immediate, but he is true to his word. See, even the greatest riches in the, and rule in the world cannot turn Jesus from serving God. So my question to us is, is our faith at a place where we can be offered the world's riches and still not turn from God? Do we trust God enough to reject the things that are valued most in this world for the sake of serving Him and His kingdom? For example, you know, if you've been offered a job that pays you twice as much, but you know that by moving to that location or moving to that job that you, will, you personally will suffer spiritually, or your family will, and you jeopardize that just for more money. Or maybe you purchased a home that is really nice, and when people look at it, they're just like, wow, this person's really doing well. But it's not within your means, and it doesn't allow you to, to steward your money the way God wants you to steward. Or even purchasing a car. You're driving around and everybody thinks, man, he's really got it going. He's got a really nice car. But again, this car puts you in financial burden and, and stress every day when God asks you to do much different things with the money that he's given you. So don't sacrifice our relationship with God for the things of this world. See, Jesus in these examples believes that God is worth our worship and so should we. So I have four lessons for us today that we can take away. Lesson number one, the Holy Spirit is essential to be effective in our ministry to the world. This is a good example in Jesus' life. Um, he's able to use the Holy Spirit now to fight off, uh, fight off the devil, and it also it comes to great aid in the rest of history and ministry. Lesson number two. Feeding our spiritual hunger is more important than feeding our physical hunger. This was a big one for me today. It really made me start to think how much we focus our day around eating in general, all the time. Just listening to people plan groceries and what's for dinner and what time, and then I just think how little we plan to spend time with God. Number three. As Christians, we are not to demand or dictate how and when God operates in our lives, but trust that He is faithful to fulfill this promise. I've known at least a handful of people that have walked away from the faith with this mindset. It's a serious thing. It's understanding how God truly acts within your relationship 
not dictating how you want it to go. Last lesson. As Christians, nothing in this world should turn us away from worshiping God alone. This is something that we all deal with on a daily basis and it's different for everybody. But it's real and it's there. So I look forward to hearing your guys' thoughts and uh, any questions you have.